0: Welcome to the Rooted in Podcast, hosted by Rooted in Language. We share expert guidance on teaching language arts and literacy based on the science of reading, best teaching practices, and our decades of experience. I am Rita Savasco, and I'm a speech-language pathologist. I teach students to read, write, and spell, especially those who struggle. Today, I'm talking to Linda Plass, who's a member of our Rooted crew. But you may not know that Linda is also a longtime user of Rooted in Language products and has been deeply rooted in our philosophy of teaching. So thanks, Linda, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Linda's in charge, basically, of all of our user experience at Rooted in Language, and she really helps me recast so many of my thoughts and words into more (laughs) user-friendly dialogue, I appreciate that, because I don't want to be full of jargon, but my head is always really deep into this material, and I I forget a lot of times uh, what life feels like when you haven't devoted 40 years to a topic, right? And um, so I appreciate Linda for that reason. She keeps me grounded. So Linda, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, First, I would say my role with Rooted in Language, I handle a lot of um, kind of behind the scenes administrative things. I first started out just editing, volunteering my time to edit pinwheels. um, And that kind of grew into uh, this position now where I handle um, a lot of the help emails, I moderate the Rooted Community Facebook group. I handle all the charter school orders. Um, I actually have experience as a user um, in that realm because I used to school my kids through a charter uh, here in California. And um, I do kind of all of the editing, as I said. But my background really, and what a lot of people don't know who are new to Rooted Language is that I'm a homeschool parent. I have been for many, many years. I do live in California, which is different than the rest of the Rooted Crew, so um, we are bi-coastal in that regard. And I started homeschooling when my oldest, I have three children, my oldest is now a freshman in college. And when she was finishing fifth grade, she said she wanted to homeschool full-time. She was pretty bored at school. She was a typical learner, didn't really have any um, struggles, a very independent learner, and wanted more out of uh, her day at school than she was getting. So she was what prompted our kind of segue into full-time homeschooling. And when I started to discover all the resources that our state provides to homeschoolers, I decided at the time to go ahead and pull uh, my other two children who are twins boy-girl twins, and they are three years uh, younger than her. So they were finishing second grade at the time. I decided to pull them from school as well because I saw all the resources that were available to me to kind of keep them involved in community and whatnot. So that's where our homeschool journey started. um, And it started very much looking like school at home because that's all I knew.
0: You were one of our early users we opened our doors online uh, in 2016, launching the book Trees in the Forest, and we started our first Roots Entwined class, and I think you found us shortly after that.
1: Yeah, so so our first year of schooling, it very much was school at home. I mean, I even had my kids line up at the door the first day because like, somebody had said that, you know, and- and I had a schedule and we were literally doing each subject area at certain times. It was very regimented. It was very much how my brain worked. And I had chosen curriculum. I was following kind of a classical model. And like I chose a language arts curriculum that was really defined for the classroom. It was very workbook heavy and it was causing tears daily. And I finally just abandoned it. I just... um All we did for language arts that year was read, read and talk. I didn't really do any structured curriculum because I didn't know what to do. But what started to become apparent, I think it was towards the end of that year or into the next year, um, was that what I was doing with my oldest child and the way she learned and the way she worked um, didn't work with the other two, um, which should not have been such a shocking revelation to me, but it was, you know, my oldest learned and worked the way I do. Um, the other two, it didn't work that way for them. The, the methods I was using, the type of curriculum I was using, even in math, it, it didn't um, resonate for them. And so I was having to really rethink my approach, but also with Uh, my son, it became apparent that he was kind of struggling. Like all of a sudden it turned into, I hate reading. I hate writing. I hate this. I hate that. And there was tears kind of every day, like his and mine. Um, Not because I was pushing so, so hard. At least I didn't think I was. um, But clearly what I was expecting was not what, what he was capable of doing at the time. You know, I would assign some reading and what I knew couldn't take five minutes, he would say he was done in five minutes. Um, and so I just knew that there was something going on, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to, where to even begin. I didn't know what what his struggles were. And I, again, was operating from a, a place of, I have no curriculum right now that I'm using. So I found Rooted in Language through uh, kind of one of your early founding members, Chantel, um, in another community, she had suggested I was expressing some of the struggles I was experiencing, and she had suggested that I look into your classes, uh, and that's really where it started. I think I also had found a podcast of yours or a, um, a session that you did about working memory and copy work. That,
0: uh was a, a recording that uh, Julie Bogart from Braver Writer and I had done about working memory. And.
1: Yes. Um, And that really resonated with me a lot. Uh, I dove into all of the classes, uh, all the Rooted in Language classes right away and Roots Entwined because I knew it was an easier process for me to apply the teaching strategies to whatever I wanted than for me to find the perfect fit in some other program for my kids. It just didn't exist for me. I also, um, not to go on a tangent, but I came to realize I'm not like this big planner. I, I, I can't, I know that some homeschoolers do a really great job at this in the summer of planning out everything they're going to cover for the next year. And that is, is just, despite how organized I am, that's not how I work. Like my brain just couldn't wrap, I couldn't wrap my head around all of that. So instead, I liked having the tools and strategies that I could then adjust based on whatever new content or ideas came my way. So if I found a poem that I wanted to work with my kids on, I could take that poem that next week and we could work, you know, do lessons in all of the areas of language arts for with that. Um, I liked that as opposed to having... A structured curriculum that I was going to kind of just push through week to week to week, no matter what the content was, whether it was useful, relevant, or even sticking for my kids. And in most cases, it wasn't sticking for my kids. So I was trying to move more to an approach of always looking at whatever is going on in our lives and whatever areas of interest my kids had and finding ways to weave that into. Um, my teaching and um, whatever lessons, you know, we needed to be working on.
0: Right, even if you find some resources that you particularly like, you still have to be applying these good teaching methods. And um, I know you've said in the past that you refer to our courses as like master level courses because the goal is really to build into this depth of knowledge. Right. That you as an educator have this depth of knowledge that you can then apply to anything. Here's a poem. What are you going to do with it tomorrow? You know, I mean, that's kind of the way you want to be to be able to recognize those teaching moments, even ones you hadn't planned for.
1: Yeah. And I think for some, it might seem kind of elementary that you learn these strategies and and you kind of have this idea, well, now what's next? Well, the what's next is really as your kids learn and grow in their skill set, the level of literature or the resources you're using grows. So the challenge is not to create more unique strategies in teaching, but rather to take the more challenging literature and apply the strategies to it. And I think that makes it easier on the educator personally, because I'm not having to rethink how to teach word study or how to apply grammar. Um, I just have to be able to expand it to more complex sentences and more complex literature as we move along or expand it to lessons in history and in science and in math, um, which we've done a lot of, um, I love the fact that the strategies I've learned, I can take and kind of double dip. Like I don't have to have just an exclusive language arts lesson. I can have a history uh, lesson, or we can be doing kind of, um, we did a lot of like unit studies or I would call it unit studies, but it was just me creating like um teachings around topics, and I could take that in history and do all of our language arts lessons in history. And I didn't, you know, and it's not to say we weren't also reading and we weren't also, um, you know, looking at literature, but we couldn't always accomplish reading a novel a month. Like that just wasn't a feasible task for um, for all of my kids it it was certainly feasible for some, but for others, like we had to boil it down to applying lessons in bits and pieces. And sometimes those bits and pieces were short stories. Sometimes they were poems, sometimes they were um, essays. Uh, sometimes they were short films even, um, and not just a long novel with lots of chapters.
0: Right. In fact, that can bog you down. Um, If you're trying to get through long novels all the time and trying to do some good literary analysis, you know, track character changes, write papers, include quotes, you know, all these things that you want to do, you can't, it's not even good teaching to throw it all into one, one activity, right? Like one topic, it's good teaching to. Hit ideas over and over and strategies over and over and over again in various ways and across various curriculum, right?
1: Yeah. And even when I did pull it into history, I was still always bringing the literature in in that area. So if we were doing a study of World War II, I was looking up, you know, some historical fiction and we were doing, you know, reading a book that related to the topic. Uh, As the kids got older, they were able to choose the focus that they wanted to have. Or, you know, if I wanted them to do a, um, read a biography, they chose which historical figure they wanted to read about in that era of, or under the umbrella of World War II, you know, whatever topic we were studying. Mm -hmm. So um, I was always trying to also bring in what their interests were because that gave me a lot more buy-in than me always choosing what we were going to study. And they didn't always know what, you know, whether something was going to interest them or not. Um, So, you know, there was certainly guidance in that respect, but, um, but I focused, like I said, more on them becoming great learners, understanding how they learn, understanding the process of learning, um, And understanding how to apply that to anything that they do, like asking good questions, teaching them how to ask good questions, so that if they come across something that they don't know, they know how to go find the answers. Um, And that was more important to me than kind of that regimented um, memorization of content, you know, whatnot.
0: Or even just this checklist mentality that a curriculum can can suggest is true right and I worry about this with pinwheels even like because we taught on a certain sound structure or a certain spelling pattern or a certain spelling rule or whatever um, it's easy to feel like okay I can check that off the syllabus we've covered comma usage we've covered drop the e-rule whatever it is and and the bigger message is that we teach something over and over and over again across many different domains right and so that drop the e rule could be something that that is taught explicitly reminded explicitly visited again the next year explicitly but constantly noticed and used more implicitly all throughout the year right so that it just keeps getting like you know driving the nail in that these concepts are really learned over years.
1: Yes for sure and you know my kids were a little bit older when I started this process so and pinwheels didn't exist at the time Um, wand wasn't something that I felt we needed so when I took the classes um, you know I I would work through the instructional plans as if they were kind of checklists from a review standpoint, but I was always weaving in that review, no matter what we were working on. So, you know, the, the three great spelling rules, that was always going to be part of our phonics and spelling segment, um, for any copy work passage where we were working on, we were going to look for those words. We were going to create word sums. We were going to identify which spelling rules we were applying. When it came to phonics, my kids were beyond that stage, but didn't mean I stopped looking at phonics. We would take our copywork passage. In fact, I was pulling some out last night. We did a poem. And as part of that poem, I had the kids identify every word that had a long vowel sound sound, and then sort those words into their long vowel buckets. This was years after they learned long vowels. So it's not that it's a one and done thing by any means. It's, we're always reviewing it. Now, what I felt comfortable in doing was simply taking whatever resource I decided we were going to use or whatever passage and looking for content in that passage to decide what I was going to teach on in a particular area. So in the phonics area, I wasn't at the stage where I needed to make sure I hit every single concept because most of that had been if not all of that had already been taught so i was just using it as an opportunity to review and refresh um as we went along whatever i found in the passage that presented itself to as worthy of being taught again or worthy of being reviewed again now that's not to say i didn't pay attention to oh this is something that my kid is struggling in or They learned this a long time ago and it's showing up in their writing as a weakness. I always paid attention to that. And I learned to pay attention to it so that I could then look for that in future copywork passages, future activities that we were doing. What do I need to uh, focus our word study on? I did some examples of I would find in my kids writing, like even just their free writes, You know, I never reviewed free writing as an opportunity to um, edit or revise. Sometimes we would take one, they would choose one and we would do that. But most of the time it was just a free write. But I would look at that to see what's carrying over in their original writing and what is not. And I would find words that were consistently spelled wrong. And then I would just take those words and we would, you know, the following week, we would do some in-depth word studies. So they, like the word necessary was a big one for my oldest. And, you know, this is a, a student who is, you know, a strong learner, and yet she could not spell that word. And so by t- breaking it down, taking the time, really hammering in, looking at that bound base word and the word sums and the related words, that's how I would weave in the concepts that I wasn't necessarily hitting on a regular basis, but I could see where their struggles were. So it just, it became a very fluid process for me. So that's part why I said at the beginning, I wasn't one who could plan my year out because my weeks and months varied depending on what I was finding in the work that they were doing or what their interests were or what our travel plans were. You know, we would do projects based on field trips and travel too. So kind of always was evolving based on that. So you
0: would more plan topics and maybe book choices, you might um, decide on what sources you were gonna use for history, say something yes. like that.
1: Yeah, I, I reached a point where I never, other than math and even with math, I pulled from different sources. I never really used a single history curriculum from start to finish, or even in within a year, let alone all, all of the years of my teaching. Um, science is not a subject I am good at. So my kids always knew we would do a lot of experiments. And we would do, again, what I would call unit studies. So for example, I decided we would do a semester on conservation and the... Um, there's an online platform called Masterclass and Jane Goodall did a masterclass on conservation. And so I got a subscription. We worked through that masterclass and I modified it based, I was working with three children, mm-hmm. um, one who was three years older than the other two. And so for her, she would do some of the discussion questions in written form, you know, responding in like short answer essay kind of format. Um, For her, I uh, roped in another book that Jane Goodall wrote and had her do, um, you know, read the book and do a book study on that. For the younger two, um, we would watch the videos together. We would read the content together. We I would always pull my copywork passage from that content. There would be vocabulary words. So we would we would work through that stuff together. And that's another important point I would want to make, too, is especially with the younger kids, there was a point where we would start to move towards independence, but there is a long period of time where anything that I was asking my kids to do, I was doing it along with them. Uh, even the free writing, I was I would spend the five minutes and I would sit down and model that I'm free writing for those five minutes. But I say that you know when we talk about intentional copy work and doing these um, mini lessons, I asked them to do a vowel sort. I have my copy in front of me and I'm doing the same thing. If I ask them to uh, analyze a sentence for grammar and find the subject and verb, we're literally doing it together. And they each have their own copy. They each have their own pen or pencil. Uh, I had my own pen or pencil. It started out with me modeling my thinking because I had a student who would shout out any and every answer until they found the one that was right, rather than thinking through what it is we're trying to analyze. So I started out just talking out loud, you know, and and helping them to see how I was figuring it out. And then over time, they were able to do that process. So there was definitely a lot of of modeling, but also just a lot of kind of uh, adjusting as we went.
0: I think you're hitting on something that I just want to spool out a little bit. So the value of you doing an activity with them, you're modeling, right? You are modeling. This is what learning looks like. This is what thinking things through looks like. This is what slow versus fast thinking (laughs) looks like. Um, and, And then the other value you just started on a little bit was adjusting. So explain that.
1: Well, for one, when you're sitting there with them, you can observe and learn from them where they're struggling. I've done it both ways. I've handed my kids assignments and said, "Okay, I taught this concept. Now go do it. And they'll walk away with a sheet of paper with, you know, whatever, 10 sentences to mark up. But there's no value in them marking things up and getting it all wrong and not having that immediate dialogue about how to do it, what to do. Like there was just no, it just seemed like, what's the point of them going and doing an activity, then handing it to me to grade and then they get things wrong, and then I do nothing more. Like there just there was no no learning there. In fact, there was just frustration. Um, there was a lot of frustration with that kind of thing. The benefit of modeling and working with them was that I could see in real time when the walls went up, where the struggle was. I didn't un- always understand why something was a struggle, but it. It helped me to then take note of where we needed to work on things. Like there's one very easy example. I remember really well, I had asked the kids to do something to, to alphabetize something, which I thought like, we're way beyond this skill, right? They're, you know, they were probably, I don't even know how old they were, but they were probably 10 or 11 at that time. And I, to me, it was, you know, kind of like riding a bike. It was like a no brainer ask in my view. And what I came to realize for one of my kids that it was really hard. It was actually not something that could be accomplished without more practice and guidance and teaching. And what that taught me was that we need to do more of that, not less. Right. Um, That's kind of one of my great learns is, you know, where there is struggle, we can't back off from it. We certainly don't want to push to the point of tears, but we also don't want to avoid it because avoiding it just means it's going to, it's never going to get easier. And in fact, probably will become more of a barrier in the long run. So in that example, I started building in You know, lessons where we were doing more alphabetizing, where we were looking words up in a dictionary, where we were using resources that were alphabetical and, and having conversations about chunking information and this, you know, the order of information, things like that.
0: Yes. Which is key types of learning, this ability to figure out what information goes in what buckets and why. Right. Right. And then information we need to learn and how we and memorize. And then how do we memorize best? We do it when we're chunking information. That's a working memory thing. And so that's true of alphabetizing too, too right. right? And just because we teach it out, it's interesting when you're in the process with kids, then you start watching the process, right? And that's when you start seeing where the gaps are. That it's not really enough to just teach an alphabet and assume you now have this skill, you can say your alphabet, you will know how to alphabetize. Well, there's a lot of little skills in between and we don't always see all those steps.
1: The other thing I learned from that and from some other activities was that, that kind of chunking of information and categories, categorizing of information was a definite struggle for my student. And so um, it wasn't only in the area of the alphabet. It was in across many areas. Uh, It just became something that, you know, for me to be aware of, one, in how I present information, two, in how he processes information, and that we needed to do more of that work across the board, and that I had to help him figure out ways that he could do that himself. That became, you know, even more evident uh, in his writing. Um, I had to help him figure out how he could organize his thinking and uh, get it out on paper, organize it on paper. Um, There's more steps involved and some kids don't want to do the more steps, but when they start to realize there's value in those steps for them, they're more willing to do it. And that's what my experience was.
0: Right. And and you know, kids, I mean, we all want a shortcut, but we have to learn we have to learn the skills to know what to short how to shortcut, right? Like you could you could have a topic now and immediately begin to think, okay, what are the three main points I would say about that topic? And you're already starting to develop a structure of a paper in your head, but that's because you've worked through a process. And you know that process. I also think that when we think of teaching in terms of teaching to the, these strategies and processes, is it does change how you use materials. So your example about how do I categorize, how do I chunk information, now a history lesson becomes much more about what is it this child really needs to learn and what is it they need a lot of support on, and then what are the parts they don't need as much support on? So, so maybe just giving me back, you know, the the factual details is easier, but maybe knowing how I would organize those details so I know which ones, you know, a, a main idea and a subordinating idea, or maybe how do I interpret all these details that could be harder. And once you understand where that child needs to work, you can then apply that anywhere.
1: Right, right. And we did that. So, you know, we did uh, when we were doing some history study around, well, I'll save this first, I was always looking at holidays, you know, themes, uh, current events, whatever's happening in the world. Um, And those would often drive some of you know the themes of what we were teaching. So, an election year, we would be doing, you know, studying about the Constitution and our founding fathers and things like that. And I would take a lesson about one of our founding fathers and have them categorize the factual information they were learning about That's them. Interesting, so-
0: Linda. When you're talking, I think about our classes and the way they're organized. You know, we have some of our classes that are very much about you know how to teach reading writing spelling but then we have and then you know our grammar classes very much starts to tilt into this not just a how-to but a philosophy around how we can bring this kind of study into everything we do word studies like that too how it's you know it's this this sense of I now have a structure to work with, and I can use this structure across various areas of study. When you look at the writing and reading courses, it really is a lot about a way of thinking and a way of approaching learning. And what are we as educators really looking for? And what are the underlying skills we really need to support, Mm -hmm. right? And that's where we start to talk about some of these areas that you are touching upon, where it's really deeply into what do I do with information to organize it in a way that I have deeper comprehension, or that I can get, I can put forth some writing that follows, you know, um, a structure or a way of expressing that not only fits my interest, but fits What the skills I need to acquire to be effective at it,
1: too. Right. And I think just as much as Rooted in Language wants to teach me the educator strategies, I want to teach my kids strategies. So, yes, there is detailed content to be taught. There's no doubt, there's foundational skills. But at some point, it's just as important that my kids have the strategies to apply to whatever it is they are doing and learning. And I think that 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 is where I wanted to get to with the work I was doing with my kids was, you know, we're using a certain theme, a certain topic as the medium, but what I'm really teaching is the strategies to the thinking strategies, the application strategies, just overall, when it comes to writing, you know, It could be whether it's kind of self-monitoring comprehension skills or writing an essay or a paper. It's all of the components that go into writing a good solid piece, but the strategies to the layers to get you there, the strategies to start out with, whether it's post-it notes or, you know, a blank page. Depends on the kid, you know, and the strategies of grouping and reorganizing and um, analyzing your own sentence structures, you know, even just the strategy of reading aloud your own work and noticing your pausing and things like that and helping you to analyze your grammar, just things like that. Yeah, I wanted them to develop a learner's mind, not just not just a student who does the worksheet that I asked them to do. And then we move on.
0: Right. In a way, when we teach that way, where here's a worksheet, do the worksheet, we really are teaching, you know, this fast, faster thinking, get it done, be more surface, as opposed to the the depth of knowledge and understanding that actually builds independence over time. Right. Don't need, someone I, I can remember when my daughters started back at school and more at the time went in at eighth grade and she said you know what's really weird is the kids are given this worksheet she said like i read the directions and i'm starting on the worksheet and they're saying you haven't told us what we have to do with this yet and she's she said like how can there be all these kids saying you haven't told us what what to do yet it's written right there i the direct, you know, I was already reading them. Well, granted, some of those kids might have reading difficulties, and they really needed help with the directions. But there also was just this sense of that I get this thing, and then I'm told what to do. And then I do what I do. And then I turn it in. And then I get a grade. And then we never look at it again. And then I get the next thing, right. And so you get this almost assembly line type kind of thinking instead of something's been handed to me, and I'm going to roll up my sleeves and figure it out. Because, That's what you do when you're learning stuff like, you know, so so we definitely want this level of really building into independence. And it does require depth.
1: Right. And that whole philosophy of, you know, I turn it in and then I move on and never look at it again. That's the problem I had with kind of the original methodology I was using. Right. Is there wasn't learning coming out of that there wasn't anything long-term that my kids were gaining and that wasn't good enough for me. Um, and I didn't feel like it was good enough for my kids when I talked about modeling, depending on the content, depending on this, the subject area or whatever, uh, set we were working on, you know, I was just always adjusting my method. So it wasn't that I was modeling something and my kids never grew to be independent in that. Um, I was, you know, and it can be hard for the educator, I get that, um, to know when to let up or when to do more, right? It's that, that tightrope of support. Should I be offering more support here? Should I be offering less support here? It just takes, it takes time to figure that out. It takes making mistakes sometimes. Um, Bad I, moments can teach you something, right? Right, right. You Good moments can too you've done talks about uh, productive versus destructive struggle. And I know I've hit some points of destructive struggle along the way and have had to apologize to my kids for that. But that's taught me a lot too, you know, in terms of where more support is needed, where less support is needed. The twins are now freshmen in high school and they're they decided to try a hybrid program this year, so they're basically doing public school online with one school, one class at at the campus. And when this school year started, I was so afraid because the level of support both of them needed, because it was a new platform, you know, and it wasn't just one new platform. I think it was like three new platforms, depending on the class. So there was that newness, but then there was that coupled with some struggles that my son has and in a program that now requires a lot of writing in every subject. And the level of support that was needed when we started was huge and it worried me greatly, but it was only for a period of time. And I didn't know that at the time, at the time I was worried, but it was just, again, a matter of providing the support he needed but not so much support that I was doing the work for him Mm -hmm. or that I was that he wasn't growing his own skills kind of thing. So, you know, and then slowly backing it off to where now the level of support I offer is simply most weeks. I say, is there anything you have that you need me to support you on? And I usually get a no and he's doing great, you know? Um, And I know the bar is different in in a traditional school setting than probably what my bar would be as far as, you know, goals and um, objectives, but it's just a matter of always being mindful of where they're at and what support they need, and then trying to find the right balance of giving that and slowly guiding them towards that independent level.
0: It's important that we work on whatever thing you can do independently at any age or stage, whatever piece of this you can do independently with success and, and assurance, we want you to do because we are always working toward that. And then when you need more help, and sometimes we're not going to recognize it. Other times we can anticipate it and prep well for it, right? But when you need more help, then that's Um, when we're there and some activities just are richer in groups that's the other part of it is there's the conversational piece where a huge amount of learning happens through conversation there's all kinds of research supporting that and it's more engaged engaged learning and sometimes you just always want even in a even if it's a book study that child could do independently now you want to pull in this engagement because there's a depth that comes out of that
1: Right. And I do know that when we first started out, I was probably teetering on the side of offering way, way, way too much support. And that grew into I what I would say was a, a bit of a problem. And so then I had to start backing off that level of support so that uh, my son could recognize that he had the skills to do what I was asking him to do. And then you know slowly like i remember one time i had to go out of town for the day and i prepped them i gave them an assignment that they were going to work on independently for the day and we we worked through kind of all of the instructions what the expectations were we threw out ideas we brainstormed all of that in the days leading up to this day that i was going to be gone so that they could do the work and i didn't know what to expect when i came home but it was done and it was done really well, you know, so and days like that were important because it showed my kids that they could do it independently. You know, that that while, yes, the group work time and the collaborative time is important, there is also a time when you can apply your knowledge and your skills on your own and be successful as well. So um, it's just kind of an ebb and flow of a process.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. And we want to have those different components in it. What do you think you've learned when when you talk to parents and you're thinking, these are the things I really want to convey. This is what I wish I could say. What what is that? What what do you think you've learned
1: that you most want to help other parents understand? So one of the most important philosophies that I've learned from you is you're saying about no one learns to swim by drowning. Um, But the flip side is no one learns to stay swim by staying on the raft. And I was definitely somebody who was on the raft for a while and just stuck because I didn't know what to do or how to do it. And so I would just say any progress is forward progress and just getting started. Even those who use the curriculum that rooted in language provides pinwheels, um, many will say it's overwhelming, right, to get started but it's overwhelming to start anything new. Um, And so I would just suggest, you know, one foot in front of the other, just take the first step. It's, you know, the first unit, the first lesson. If you're, you know, working in the realm of intentional copy work and you, um, it's just pick one content idea for each skill area. Pick one thing you want to work on in phonics for that week, you know, and just start with one thing. It's just, it's so much more important to do that than to do nothing. And the gap will only widen when you do nothing or when you wait. Um, that's was my experience anyway. I think that one of the most important things, questions you often ask that I now often try to remember to ask myself is what is the goal? And that not every piece of writing has to be edited to the point of perfection. Not every sentence has to be analyzed for proper grammar, uh, whether it's in copy work or in original writing. You know, what is the goal? I remember like it was yesterday, the day that my oldest turned in a written narration of some history assignment I asked her to read. And I, of course, because it's just my nature. I think I got this from my mother to correct her grammar.
0: Always, always blame mother, right? Yes.
1: Well, I, you know, a little aside, I did like in my adult years find a box of stuff my mother saved of mine, and she had graded my high school senior English thesis paper after the teacher graded it. Like she corrected it. So there's that. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. But with my oldest, I remember she turned in this narration. I'm sure I didn't even pay attention to what she'd written because all I did was correct her grammar and her spelling. And that was not the point of the assignment, but that's what I knew. And so that's what I went for. And I watched her when I went back to go over it with her. Again, not the content, just the spelling and grammar. She visibly slumped in front of me and it just sits in my the back of my brain every time to remind me of what is the goal. And the goal of that assignment was not grammar or spelling in the least. It was, you know, did she read and comprehend and make some interpretations and analysis of what she read? But I missed the point of that assignment. So I do try to remind myself of that. And there is a time and a place when grammar and spelling are the goal it's just not always that case. Um, so just trying to constantly evaluate what the purpose is of what we're doing and making sure we stay on target for that purpose. Um, and anything else is just kind of extra bonus. If, if it comes up,
0: you know, it sounds like when you, you know, when we talk about some of the logistics of all the all the things involved in language arts and and in learning and different, you know, strategies and all that. And and I talk about research and blah, blah, blah. It can start to feel like, um, you know, do we care about kids? But the reality is everything we're describing here has great honor to the learner. We're really honoring the learner. We're honoring where they are, what they need support with, We're honoring the fact that not everybody wants to be off doing everything alone all the time. We're honoring that this is a process and they need time. You know, uh, it's it, it, we're honoring things they like. What can we, how can we take topics they enjoy and apply the learning to topics they already, I mean, I have always said this the most interesting things I have learned about history has been when it's around a topic I wanna know about. I find architecture in history interesting. I find art in history interesting, right? It's not just the history, you know, Mm -hmm. the costumes, I don't know, it's like, it's a lot of things like that, that, you know, the history of literature and and philosophies, those kinds of things interest me more than just wars. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's very much, the way we can teach our kids, if we're not too locked into any one curriculum that's going to have pieces that, and and, you know, just like there could be great things in any curriculum you find, but there's probably gonna be some stuff that you don't need to do or spend time on, right? And I think
1: you build confidence and value
0: to the learner.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a learning and relationship philosophy. And for me, my kids were much more engaged and interested and willing if it was topics or areas of that were interesting to them. And again, they didn't always know whether something was going to be of interest to sure. them. And so we would introduce it. We could um, take a theme that we were working on and I could let the kids choose, you know, which individual or which aspect of that topic they wanted to to look at in more depth. It was just, it was way more interesting to, to work that way. It was more work in some ways. You know, I was pulling resources from a million different places. I was doing a lot of searching. I would, um, just as we have kids create their LA binders for all these LA concepts, I didn't expect my kids to read or watch videos on a topic in history and all of a sudden they know all of that information so i was creating notebook pages that kind of a little bit of french dictation style or just kind of like with um images of like buckets of categories of information that they would then fill in you know or we would fill in together after we viewed something or after we read something so I was developing note-taking skills, but giving them the structure for that. It is just so much more empowering for them, I think, if they're interested in what they're learning, but also if I was interested in what they had to say. When we talk about on honoring the learner, I came to realize that I had a certain expectation of the type of writing that I thought was good writing, worthy writing. You know, my my frame of reference was my oldest child. She could write pages upon pages, you know, very thoughtful content. My other daughter was the same way. My son's type of writing was very different. And for a while I didn't appreciate that until I came across a book uh, by Ralph Fletcher called Boy Writers. And that book, um, it's written for the classroom, but it can be applied in any learning environment. It really opened my eyes to my son's individuality and uniqueness and his own style of creativity that I wasn't giving enough respect to. And so that was part of my growth and learning in this whole process was honoring each individual learner not only in how i was teaching each of my kids but also in how i was engaging with them and how i was receiving their output because once i came to honor and accept the work that my son was producing with his own unique style it kind of lowered the the temperature in the room it allowed for More dialogue and discussion without agitation. And I started to see less pushback, less kind of walls going up and, you know, inability to communicate and push forward, and more willingness to engage and try because he could see that his efforts were not being stifled. So I think that was um, an important growth and learning process for me as part of honoring each of my kids and what they had to offer. Okay,
0: so Linda, tell me uh, a Rooted in Language resource that you really liked or got a lot out of. What do you you think of fondly? (laughs)
1: Well, first, I would say all the things, right? Um, Oh, good answer. (laughs) The first resource that I ever used from Rooted in Language is Explore a Story, and it is still one of my favorites for many reasons. Uh, One, you can use it with multiple kids at the same time, regardless of age, and their level of engagement and writing is just appropriate for wherever they're at, so I loved that about it. I loved that it brought out some analysis, um, some um, abstract thinking, which was uh, an area of struggle here. And I loved that it was creative and it could again, be applied across any age or any stage, any level of depth. And also we used it a lot with movies and movie characters, not just books. And so um, that was fun too. You know, my kids loved it when we would take a school day and go to the movies. Um, And I loved it when I could say, yes, we're going to do that, but we're also going to add some learning element to it. And you're, you know, we're going to go through the steps and do this character analysis. And everybody got to choose which character they wanted to focus on. So it was personal to them and it was um, what they cared about, what they felt was important but we went through the steps of analysis. So they were learning a process, but applying it to content that was interesting to them and at an appropriate level.
0: As educators, especially early in the game, what you want is a roadmap. Like you want, I want to know what's point A, point B, point C, point D. I wanna know exactly what to do. But in truth, what we really want is good teaching. And we realized that over time, like if you do, and it's probably your journey is very similar to what most people go through in a way in that you get frustrated when everything isn't organized in point A, B, C, D, but actually it, it never really can be. That's mostly a facade, right? And it's boring. It's boring for everybody. It's even boring for the teacher. So, you know, engaged learning means that I'm engaged in prepping. I'm engaged in looking at what are good resources, and then I'm engaged in figuring out, out figuring out how these strategies fit in different curricula, or even how we I can overlap. How can I overlap? We wrote in history, so we did some editing work, and editing is what we've been learning about over here, right? So you do this kind of work, and it's it's it is though just more interesting for everyone,
1: right? And one point I want to make too is it's so easy to fall in the trap of comparison to what's going on in the public school system. My kids even would fall into that trap. You know, They would have friends or teammates or whatever who would ask questions almost as if to trick them into, well, you don't know this, but I do kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so we would have a lot of conversation about why we're doing it the way we're doing it, what you're learning, what the value is of how we're learning it versus how they're learning it. You know, I didn't make my kids memorize all 50 state capitals. Maybe there's value in that. I didn't feel the need because my kids could look it up if they really needed that information. But we did a lot of national park trips and we did a lot of uh, field trips in that related to subjects we were talking about. So when I mentioned World War II, we read the book, Farewell to Manzanar. We actually went to Manzanar. So we did a lot of things that were more applied and I would say far greater depth, but we didn't cover as much breadth because I felt like they could always cover that down the road if, if the need arise, you know, would arise kind of thing. So I often talk about, you know, a different path of learning is just different. It's not better or worse. But for us, this is what was more important. You know, if we traveled, we brought that into our our learning, right? We created travel journals. We created photo journals, you know, and you can apply it at any age, you know, photo journal with a label versus a photo, you know, PowerPoint presentation with, explanations of all the historical places you visited, like it can really go across the board. Um, so, yeah, I just want to reiterate that we all fall into the comparison trap. But just remembering, like you always say, what is your goal that can be applied to a small lesson that you're doing, but it can also be applied to your homeschooling philosophy. What is your goal? And just always keeping that in mind will kind of be your North Star. In, you know, where you're headed and why, and make sure your kids know that. And, you
0: know, they are going to grow up and they're going to be done. And then we, we are now these people who have been educated along with our kids. And we have to think about what our next goals are too. You know, it's, it's just an interesting, I feel like we're really blessed that you, and I mean this sincerely, that you started volunteering for us and then came to work for us for being horrendously underpaid <laughs> as, uh, as most startups uh, have to do, but, but you give us so much of your time and talents. And I, I know that it, it is something that has really blossomed from this experience of teaching your kids and caring about good teaching.
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, I started out in my career as a CPA and kind of liken editing to being an auditor in many ways. But what's funny is when I first started out in college, I actually wanted to be a teacher. I just decided I couldn't support myself on a teacher's salary. And so I went a different direction. As you've well learned. <laughs> yes. But life comes full circle, right? And so When the opportunity came up and my daughter, my oldest wanted to homeschool, um, you know, that became my method of teaching. What I learned when I found Rooted in Language was, one, how passionate you all are about educating the educator, about giving every kid the opportunity to grow their skills to whatever extent possible for them, and you know, it was such a blessing to me to find your resources, not just for, you know, my son who, you know, had his learning struggles, but for all of my kids, I used everything I learned from Rooted in Language and seeing the impact that that had on my own kids, seeing the impact it has on the, you know, families in our community. That's what made me want to be a part of it, you know, is is knowing that you're doing such important work and and it's work that, you know, you're changing the trajectory of kids lives Um, and who wouldn't want to be a part of that. So,
0: well, we're grateful because you make us better and you really do care about our community and uh, how you can help them. I know you you answer a lot of questions. And, and share a lot of resources. So, well, thank you. I, Linda often joins me for office hours. I think you've always been there um, because first of all, we couldn't find a single one of our resources without her very well, but she uh, at times will share her experiences. And that's something I always value that Linda has a lot to teach all of us. So, We really appreciate that. Thank you for doing this with me, Linda. I really wanted people to know who you are and what a resource you can be for them. Thank you. This is Rooted in Language. As always, we appreciate your listening. When you like our podcasts, blogs, recordings, or reels, and when you share them with your friends, you help others find this critical information. So be sure to follow us on social media Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, and visit our website, rootedinlanguage.com. There you'll find our classes, curricula, instructional materials, and plenty of free resources. Support our mission, the mission that both Linda and I are on with the Rooted crew to help all learners become the best readers and writers they can be, including your own kids.